0: Well, good morning, Harvest. Morning, Harvest. That's way, way better. I'm going to preach from a stool today. How many of you think I can do it? I am. At least half the message. I'm going to stay right here. You don't believe I can do it, which makes me even more determined to stay here. All right, if you don't have a Bible here this morning, um, maybe you're a guest, or uh, maybe you forgot yours in the car, uh, we, uh, we've we got some ushers who are in the aisles, and they'd love to get one into your hands. We, uh, we're teaching right from God's Word, if you're a guest here today, and if you need one, just raise your hand, and uh, we'll get one into your hands right now, and... Uh, yeah, so we want to see what God has to say for, uh, to us, and, um, and we're going to be flipping around a little bit into various passages, Old Testament, New Test- Testament, just kind of getting our heads around finishing up uh, this series. And before we get to all of that, um, in your bulletin this morning, you see this card just says, start here on the front, and uh, there's a great Bible verse there from First John, aren't they all great Bible verses? Yeah, this one's a great one too. Uh, he laid down his life for us we ought to lay down our lives first uh, john 3:16 finishes over on the other side with a portion from verse 18 from the same passage and i'm just going to give you a little clue little heads up next week's a big week right next week's a big week right why don't you just do it the first time okay <laughs> So uh, next week, September the 9th, Sunday, we're launching a brand new ministry year, and we're excited about it. I'd love to tell you the theme, but I can't, Uh, but I can tell you that the key verses for our year are 1 John 3, 16 through 18. Got that down? 1 John 3, 16 through 18, and uh, y'all should have that memorized by next Sunday, and I already got the staff and elders uh, working on that, and uh, can I get up off the chair for just a second? All right, I just want to put this down here on the chair. All right, thanks. Did somebody say no? Okay, come on, guys. All right, so we're excited about our brand new ministry launching. And in case you haven't been around Harvest very long, we take the first Sunday after Labor Day. And uh, what we do is we open up the passage that's going to be our theme verses for the year, 1 John three sixteen through 18. I'm going to teach a little bit on that. And then I'm going to outline what we're going to be studying together in God's Word for the whole year. And I'm very excited about this because we're only going to study nine chapters of Scripture for the whole year. All right? So I'm excited to be able to tell you about that. Uh, Next year, you think I can't do it? I can. And uh, we're going to do it together. We're going to be in God's Word. I'm telling you, we're going to lock down these chapters and make sure we are living these out for Jesus Christ, right? So it's going to be an exciting time. And uh, next week also, we're excited about, we're really excited about the starting of school on Tuesday. Said all the parents. And... uh, so we're, uh, we're really excited about that. And so next, um, next uh, Sunday morning, we're also going to have a blessing of the children and a blessing of the educators. How's that? And uh, we're going to bring all the kids in, and we're going to lay hands on them and uh, pray over them. We're going to have all the educators stand, all our public school and separate school and private school, Christian school, and, and home educators. We're going to have you stand up, and uh, we're going to pray for you next Sunday morning just as a dedication of our brand new school year. So we're excited about all kinds of things that are going on. But we got to get to this right now and spend the next little while in God's Word. So this is a little bit different uh, this morning. Uh, For the last month, we've been studying Romans 9 uh, through 11. And uh, in that that passage, we really see Paul kind of laying out for us who exactly are the people of God. Who, Who is this group that the Scriptures refer to? And specifically, he's wanting the church to understand what... God's plan is for Israel, and it's a big question that's out there today. Uh, how does Israel fit into all this? And so in the past weeks, we've looked at Israel's place in God's plan, and how did God's people go so wrong, and has God discarded Israel? And we've answered all of those questions. We still have a few kind of lingering questions, and I had you send some of those in, and we got some questions by email, and I've had some phone calls and personal conversations with some of you, kind of distilled that all down, and, 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 and looked at God's word, and come up with some answers, I think, that are going to help us. Um, have a greater understanding of what we've heard. So that's where we're going to start. Very simple today, just a two-point message. A greater understanding of what we've heard, and then a godly response, a God-honoring response to what we've heard. Does that sound about right? We kind of hear it, we understand it, and then we do it. That's what we're about, right? Hear it, understand it, and then just do it, right? We've got to obey God's word and respond to it in the appropriate way. So why don't we pray right now, and then we'll get into some of these questions. Father, I am so grateful for the opportunity to to be here, uh, to be under the teaching of your word, and to know that your Holy Spirit is here bringing understanding of the scriptures and specifically bringing to us, to our minds and to our hearts, an understanding of how we have to live this out. So Father, have your way with us today. Father, do the work in us that we cannot do for ourselves, a work of changing us and making us more uh, into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. We're desperate to be like him, to know him more fully, to know you. And God, in this a study that we've um, been working through concerning the people of God, help us to understand exactly who we're to be as the people of God and how you have been working with Israel And God, how you will continue to work with Israel in the future. And how we can be a part of all that you're doing. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. All right. first question is this. And uh, many of you ask this question. It comes right out of Romans 11, uh, verse 25, the passage that we've been studying. A phrase in that verse, let me read it for you. Lest you be wise in your own conceits, Paul writes... I want you to understand this mystery. Now let me pause right there and just say that a mystery is, it's not something, it's not kind of like uh, Scooby-Doo and Shaggy trying to figure it out, okay? This, a mystery is a previously unknown truth that is now revealed, all right? A previously unknown truth that's now revealed. I want you to understand this mystery. You didn't know it before, uh, now you're going to know it because I'm teaching it to you. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Now that phrase alone kind of tells me that this was not a full hardening. This was not a, I've set Israel aside forever. It was a partial hardening. Still have something for them. Chapter 11 just keeps driving this point, phrase after phrase. I have something else for Israel. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, that's the phrase we want to look at in the first question. What is the fullness of the Gentiles? And was it fulfilled when the Israelis took control of Jerusalem in 1967? Now, that question came to me, and I've heard this in teaching before. And uh, the first thing I need to do, how many people here love history? Just raise your hand if you love history. You're going to love this next part. How many people just don't like history at all? Okay, you can just go and pause for a few minutes. So a little Israeli history, just so we understand the scope of things. Uh, Jesus Christ, in the 4th century, 84th century, is crucified. He's resurrected. He ascends into heaven. And then some 40 years later, in 8070, the Romans have had enough of the Jews. And uh, they wipe out Jerusalem. Wipe it flat. Just knock down the walls and destroy the city and destroy the temple. The Jews are scattered all over the world. And they remain scattered all over the world. Literally. They lived in the Arab world. They lived in Asia. They lived in Europe. They uh, During... Uh, the uh, the time of exploration in North and South America, they moved to those places. They live in Australia. Jews are everywhere, all over the planet, scattered everywhere. And uh, they've been that way for 19, almost 1900 years. And then at the end of the 1800s, the 19th century, uh, there began a new movement called the Zionist movement. At the end of that time, or uh, during that time, uh, Jews were beginning to be stirred up again to reclaim a homeland, and originally, believe it or not, I don't know if you know this, but they thought about going to Uganda, in an area in, in Africa, and of course, that wasn't really acceptable to a lot, who, a lot of Jews, of many Jews, who believed that Israel was their ancestral land, the land given to them by God. Through a series of events, particularly the World Wars, World War I, the Ottoman Turks were defeated, they controlled Palestine at the time. They were defeated by the British during World War I. The British took over and instituted the Balfour Declaration and the uh, what's called the British Mandate in 1917. And they took control of that and had control over that whole part of the world right up until the 1940s. And uh, really it was a bit of a problem for them and they were more than happy to turn it over to the UN after World War II. And uh, in 1947, in November of 1947, the UN declared that there would be a state of Israel and they partitioned. Uh, An area for the Palestinians and an area for the Jews. In 1948, May 15th, 1948, uh, the, uh, the first Israelis got together in the land, declared the state of Israel and immediately went to war against five Arab states that were around them. And really, somebody has said, you know, there was the War of Independence in 1948, the 1967 Six-Day War, the 1973 Yom Kippur War, and really everything else that we've seen in the last uh, 60 years. Some would say that that's one giant war that Israel has been fighting, uh, rather than a series of little wars. But in any event, uh, there's a state of readiness. It was one very interesting thing that we saw while we were on our trip to Israel, to see a, a great number of young people around The country at bus stops here and there carrying M-16s over their shoulders. Uh, On their way to and from military training, when they're issued their M-16, it's theirs. They have to keep it. They keep it with them until their tour of duty is over. A very common sight in Israel. And you really get the sense that this is a nation that is constantly and perpetually um, at war. And so in 19, um, one of the key uh, events that happened in 1967, the Arabs were all uh, flexing their muscles and, and brandishing their swords, and Israel decided to uh, launch a preemptive strike. And in six days, seized a great number of territories, including uh, the Golan Heights, which you hear much about in the news. Seized that from Syria, they seized um, they seized the West Bank, of course, and uh, and they seized more, most importantly to the Jews, they seized the city of Jerusalem from the Jordanians. And uh, so, for the last forty years, the Jews have had control over. Uh, the city of Jerusalem. Now there are those who would teach then that when the Jews took over the city of Jerusalem, that was the fulfillment of the times of the Gentiles. The fullness of the Gentiles had now happened. For 1900 years, Jerusalem was in the hand of the Gentiles. Now it's not in the hands of the Gentiles, it's in the hands of the Jews Time of the Gentiles is over. The problem is that for the last 40 years, I haven't really seen any evidence of the Gentiles really kind of coming to the end. The church is still very much flourishing in the last 40 years. The Jews have not had an awakening concerning their uh, Messiah, their true Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so it's clear to me that that particular event was not the fulfillment of that uh, passage, this passage that we read Uh, Here in Romans 11.25. The fact is we can't precisely pin down the timing of it. The scriptures repeatedly warn us. You can jot down this reference, Acts 1.7, where Jesus, the resurrected Christ, is about to give the mandate to the church and and he says, you know, it's not about the times. Forget about trying to figure out the times of things. When I'm going to come back and when the kingdom's going to come. That's not for you to know. In actual fact... If we're looking at this phrase, the fullness of the Gentiles, we really could write it this way, until the full number of Gentiles is realized. In other words, when all of the Gentiles who are going to become followers, become followers, then the fullness of the Gentiles is over. Now, God in his sovereignty, he knows exactly how many people are going to become followers of Christ, doesn't he? And when that time is over, listen, then the fullness of the Gentiles is completed, and then this special time of directed ministry towards the Jews, will begin. It may also refer, and we can't be absolutely precise about this, but it could refer to the spreading of the message of Christ to the whole world. When everyone has had an opportunity to hear, and jot down this reference, Matthew 24, 14. And in that uh, that, uh, verse it just says, And this gospel of the kingdom which you're hearing, when this is spread to all of the earth, then the end is near. So it's when the message is spread everywhere. And I'll just tell you right now, in terms of world evangelization and getting the message out, there are still places in the world where you can go and mention the name of Jesus Christ and they have no idea who you're talking about. And there are many parts of the world who know the name and yet they only have a distorted view about who he is. So the task isn't over. And as far as I can see from the scriptures, the times of the fullness of the Gentiles are not over. So that's the first question, got it, got it? See, just do it the first time. Here's the second thing. Again, very much related to that. Is 1948 then, this was the creation of the state of Israel, is the 1948 creation of the state of Israel the fulfillment of the prophecy of the valley of dry bones from Ezekiel chapter 37. Many of you who are students of a prophecy in apocalyptic literature will know that prophecy and know that in there, there's all these dry bones that are scattered everywhere and in the vision that Ezekiel sees. And man, no one has wackier visions than Ezekiel, I'll tell you, but there's there's this gathering, the bones begin to come together and they lift up and they all get formed and then there's muscles and sinews and everything comes back over and skin and what were dead, dry bones become life again. And many people see that prophecy as being the fulfillment of the coming together of the state of Israel. In other words, the Jews were scattered all over the world. 1948, they all came together. You look at the nation, it seems to have life again and be a body and be alive. And so it certainly looks like that could be the fulfillment, doesn't it? But I say the answer to the question is maybe. How's that for theological precision? That's what you come to harvest for, right? We got a great big maybe this morning. And you know what? I think the problem is that when it comes to a lot of the apocalyptic passages, we get awfully presumptuous about the interpretations. We get presumptuous about passages that are laden with imagery. They're metaphors, they're symbols, they're figurative language, they're word pictures. And we get presumptuous and say, wow, look at this wonderful vision that Ezekiel had no clue what it was about. And we read into it and go, wow, the current events of the day seem to fit this metaphorical image. Therefore, this is this. And we make this categorical pronouncement about it. And I think it's presumptuous to do that. And um, I think unless God has really brought it clearly into view, we can see these only as possible fulfillments of what God is doing. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. Just a couple of phrases concerning prophecies like this. Not naive, and not presumptuous, not naive about it, and not presumptuous about it, Uh, not dismissive of it, but not overly zealous about it. So understand what we're saying here. I can't just dismiss it and say, no, Ezekiel 37 has nothing to do with the nation of Israel coming together and God's future plan for them but nor do I want to be presumptuous and overzealous about it and say categorically, yes, this is the fulfillment. I think we get ourselves under some pretty shaky shaky ground when we do that. The middle ground would have us acknowledge that these could be the fulfillments and thus respond biblically to what we know to be true and not boldly making categorical pronouncements, presuming upon such text. And again, we're warned about setting dates. And uh, one of the problems with the 1948 date and saying absolutely this is the fulfillment of prophecy and this is how God is working. One of the problems with it is, is that you have other passages that speak about the generation not passing away until all of these things are fulfilled. Uh, a biblical generation is apparently 40 years. 1948, help me do the math here, add 40 becomes 1948. 88, and there was a book that came out. Many of you who were followers of Christ at the time will remember a book called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture is Happening in 1988. Anybody remember that book? Good, I'm glad. Okay. I remember it. It was a splash, and it was all over the place, and it was based on the rationale that 1948 plus 40, a biblical generation, Christ is going to come before the end of that generation Because he said that you wouldn't pass away. That generation wouldn't pass away until they'd seen all these things happen. Well, of course, what year is it now? 2007, right. So we've passed 1988. So it didn't happen, right? And the only thing that really came good out of it is the the guy sold a lot of books and uh, did the lecture circuit and the whole thing. Uh, But listen, it was false because he was setting dates, basing it on an assumption that Ezekiel 37 was absolutely categorically this. And We shouldn't be doing that. And so could it be? Well, yeah, it could be. And I think that we should look at it and we should be honest about what we're reading. We might say something like, sure, it looks like God's bringing some things about that may be fulfilling some of the prophetic passages. And then ask this question, how ought we to live in light of what we just read and thinking that God is certainly on the move and doing something great? All right. Here's a third question that we got. And again, this one comes right out of Romans 11, uh, verse 26 this time. Does all Israel, maybe that should be do, a, I don't even know what the grammar there is. All Israel gets saved at some future date. We see this right in verse 26. Read this now. We read verse 25. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way, the lifting of the partial hardening, understanding of the mystery, the fullness of the Gentiles come to be, in this way, all Israel, Israel will be saved. And so the question there is, is it all Israel? At the time of of their understanding of who Messiah is, does it mean that every single Jew living on the planet will finally and ultimately recognize who their Messiah is? And there are some people who advocate that it will indeed be all Jews who will be convinced of Messiah, every Jew who's living on the planet at the time. Others would believe that the phrase should be translated, or at least understood, that all true Israel will be saved. And back and forth in these chapters, Paul has gone back and forth between referring to Israel... The broad understanding of the people of God versus true Israel. The narrow understanding of those who truly are the followers of Christ. We talked last week about the same thing being true about the church. There are many people who identify with the church. Not everyone is true church. Not everyone has made a decision for Jesus Christ. But you may identify with the church. And so this passage should uh, maybe be understood in this way. All true Israel will be saved. In fact, if you want kind of the cross-reference to that, or we look back uh, into chapter 9 and we understand that uh, not all who are descended from verse 6, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And unless we understand that there's Israel and true Israel, we can't understand that verse. Not all who are descended from Israel, not all who are Jewish ethnically are true Israel in other words having faith Uh, In the message of uh, Jesus Christ. Throughout chapter 11 too. We always want to interpret scripture with scripture. Not with opinion and conjecture. And so throughout chapter 11. If we're trying to understand who all Israel is. We understand that God in verse 5. Was talking about uh, a remnant of Israel. Uh, We understand uh, that it is uh, some. uh, Verse uh, 14. How to make uh, my fellow Jews jealous. And thus save some of them. And so Paul's always talking about a remnant or part uh, being uh, grafted back into the plan that he's uh, working with. And so does all Israel get saved at some future date? Uh, all true Israel will be saved. All the ones that God has preordained would be saved. All those who would be uh, his true followers, they indeed will be saved. How we doing? Ready for the fourth one? Everybody doing All right. Okay, just filling our heads with knowledge right now. We're going to get to the good stuff in a few moments, all right? Uh, Here's the fourth question. When we read about the restoration of Israel from being scattered throughout the world, in Ezekiel and Zechariah, just a couple of the passages, does that refer to the return from Babylonian exile, the time of Jesus' earthly ministry, or something in the future? Now, I don't know how many people here, when you're reading Ezekiel, you're reading Zechariah, or you're reading Isaiah, you're reading the prophets, and you go, boy, that sure sounds like return from Babylon. And then you go, boy, that sure sounds like the coming of Jesus uh, the first time when he came as a baby and lived his earthly life and ministry. And then you're reading it, and you go, wait a minute. That really sounds like it hasn't happened yet. Have you had that experience when you're reading through the text? It's important for us to understand what God is doing through the prophets. And the prophets certainly didn't have a full understanding of timelines. We understand that God stands outside of time. So we like to chart everything out. And and I like everything charted out. I like the line that kind of says this happens here and this happens here. We get that all the engineers in the crowd love that stuff. It's all got to be flow charted and understood. But God stands outside of all of that time. Time. And, and God gives prophecies or brings a prophet to himself and gives him this great vision. And the prophet is seeing so much happening in front of him. It's like, a, it's like five IMAX screens in front of him. And he's trying to figure the whole thing out all at once. I heard it illustrated this way. He's looking out on a mountain range. And if you've ever been to the Rockies or seen some other mountain range understand that there are mountains and valleys and all kinds of kind of blends together the prophet is looking out on that and he's seeing prophecies related to Israel being in an exile in Babylon in the 500s BC and he's seeing prophecies of the coming of Jesus Christ uh, and, and uh, then he's seeing prophecies of things that are yet future even for us, and he's seeing all of these prophecies as different mountains, and he can't necessarily pick out, just like we can't when we're looking at a mountain range, which mountains are closer and which mountains are farther away. And he's just writing, wow, I see this happening, and, and, and this is happening, and, and over there on that mountain I see this, I'm writing it all down, and then Crafting it together in these passages. In essence, what you have in the apocalyptic literature, in the prophetic passages, is prophecies all running together that are partially fulfilled, ultimately aiming for an ultimate and final fulfillment. But in the return from exile, there are fulfillments. In the coming of Jesus Christ the first time, there are fulfillments. And there is yet to be a final and ultimate fulfillment of all of the prophecies. That's why you'll be reading something and go, well, that was fulfilled in Jesus, and that was fulfilled in Jesus' coming, and, I, and that was the crucifixion, and here's the resurrection. I see all of that. And then you see a part and go, wow, that, that just doesn't seem to have happened yet. And yet it's all wrapped in around what sounds like exile and first coming of Christ talk. But you look at it and you go... Boy, it sure doesn't look like that's happened. Now, I want you to see one of these so you don't have to take my word for it, but Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah chapter 61, by the way, was the passage that got Jesus in a heap of trouble in his hometown of Nazareth. And uh, he was invited back after um, he'd been consecrated for the ministry, baptized by John. He goes back to his hometown, he goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath, as was the custom. And he stands up there, and they open the scroll of Isaiah, and he's going to read now for the, for the synagogue. And he begins reading Isaiah 61, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. And he goes on to talk through all of the succeeding verses, all of these things that are to be fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. And he got people really upset because the thing he said after he finished his reading was, this day, these prophecies are fulfilled in your presence. In other words, I'm the one that this was speaking of and people got a little upset with him. Now, as we read through all of this, we say, oh yeah, for sure, Uh, these things are fulfilled in Jesus. A good news to the poor a bind up the brokenhearted. That means there's no more broken-hearted people today. Right? There's some brokenhearted people right here in this room right now. So what are we believing about Jesus? I mean, if he came to bind up the brokenhearted, why are there still brokenhearted people? Well, that's because we had a partial fulfillment in the coming of Jesus Christ. It will be ultimately fulfilled on the day when Jesus Christ comes and heals all of our diseases. When he takes us to be with himself for all eternity, when we see him for who he is, we see him face to face, and we live in that perfected new Jerusalem, new heavens, new earth. So we have a partial fulfillment. Man, I'm looking forward to that day, aren't you? I kind of wish the rapture had happened in 1988. I'm kind of hoping it was just delayed by nine years, and we're done soon, right? But listen, because there's still brokenheartedness. There's still sorrow. There's still death. There's still all of these things. People are still shackled. They're not free the way that... Isaiah 61 talks about, not entirely, not completely. We see this happening in salvation, in fact, and Pastor Les is so diligent to teach this in our encounter classes. We see this in salvation. We understand that salvation is immediate. We have the forgiveness of our sins. We know that those sins are removed from us as far as the East is from the West. And God blesses us so much with that, that we can walk in the newness of life. But the reality is that while the power of sin has been canceled in our lives, the presence of sin is still here, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, it is in my life anyways. So, I mean, it's still here. The temptations are still here. And someday that's gone. But not yet. God is still working his plan. And uh, so... When we read about these things in the scriptures, we understand that there, are, that there are things that have been fulfilled completely, some things that have not been fulfilled completely, and are yet to be fulfilled in the future. Does that seem to make sense to some people? Hopefully we're locking that down. Another great passage there um, is a Zechariah 2, 6 through 13. It's a great passage, and we won't take the time to look at that one. Here's a fifth question, and then I've got some questions that are part of the latter part of this message. If Israel is the, see, I've stayed on the stool the whole time. You guys are pretty impressed, right? I'm almost done on the stool, and then I'm getting into preach mode for the last 10 minutes, all right? I haven't been preaching, if you're a guest, not yet, okay? If Israel is the apple of God's eye, this is a reference from Zechariah 2, and the church is the bride of Christ, Ephesians 5, okay? Israel, the apple of God's eye, church, bride of Christ. Are there two separate programs at work? One for Israel and one for the church. And I think we've answered this a little bit uh, in the series. Uh, but let me give you a quiz, first of all. Uh, just, say, um, just say yes or no. And I'm asking you to identify great Jewish heroes. Are these people Jews? Because right? we're trying to lock down whether or not God has two programs or just one program. So Adam, Jewish or not Jewish? Is he Jewish? No, Adam wasn't Jewish. How about his son um, Abel? His son, no? No, how about Noah? Built the ark, faithful to God. Was he a Jew? No, he wasn't a Jew either. Okay, how about, um, okay, I'm going to trick you this time. All right, you're going to have to think a little bit. Abraham, Jew or not a Jew? Careful. I'm setting you up. You know I do it every once in a while. See, Abraham wasn't really a Jew. You see, because he had two sons, right? Who were his sons? Isaac and Ishmael. Hmm, okay. And Ishmael was the father of what people? Arab people. See, Abraham wasn't a Jew either. Okay, what about? Um, so his son was Isaac, right? Was, Isaac must have been a Jew, right? No, he wasn't. Who were his two sons? Jacob and Esau, father of the Edomites. You see, Isaac wasn't a Jew either. Now, Jacob, he had this whole wrestling match with God thing, and God named him Israel. See, I think Jacob might have been the first Jew. And, uh, and so, you know, God has a program to find faithful people who are going to love him. And prior to the establishment of the nation of Israel, he had faithful people. He had Abraham, he had Noah, he had Adam, he he had all of these wonderfully faithful, I'm in love with God people who believed the promise that someday the seed of the woman was going to crush the serpent's head. That's all they had to hang their hat on. Now when Abraham came along, there was much greater revelation given and there was going to be a land and a certain people who were going to be, listen now, a certain people who were going to be used by God to bless all the nations of the earth. It wasn't just that the Jews were going to be saved. It was that all the nations would be blessed through that particular nation. One plan, one people of God. If we hear nothing else in this, in this whole series, it is that there is one plan, one people of God. When we refer to the apple of God's eye, we're referring to all of those who are true believers in Jesus Christ and in, in God. Anybody here who loves Christ, you are the apple of God's eye. When we refer to the bride of Christ, we're referring to all the people of all time who loved the Lord and served him. Whether prior to the establishment of the nation of Israel, whether during the time of the nation of Israel, whether during the Gentile age, or whether in the time to come when God will work again a special working of his plan and power in the nation of Israel. We don't have time to look at all the passages here, but I've given them to you. Galatians 3, 28 and 29. In Christ, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. Now, those distinctions still remain in reality. The ethnic difference between Jew and Gentile is still obvious today. But we're all equal before God. One people, one plan. Go to Revelation in Revelation chapter 5, it's all nations of the people of, of the world before the throne of God, praising Him and worshiping Him. Everybody's there. There's no distinction there between Jew and Gentile. Throughout the book of Re- Revelation, it talks about the 24 elders. We talked earlier in the series about the names of those elders being on the gates and on the foundations of the city. The, the 24 elders of the 12 apostles and the 12. patriarchs of Israel, one people of God, not two separate plans. And uh, sadly, I need to kind of drive this a little bit, because while we were in Israel, we heard a man speak, and I think I have to say, it was like the worst sermon I've ever heard. It was the worst, by an evangelical person who loves the Lord Jesus, it was the worst treatment of scripture I've ever seen in my life. He had six points, and four of them were loosely based on proof texting out of the Bible. All I'm going to find this verse that's going to prove my point rather than going to the text and saying, what does this really mean? And he preached, and one of the things that he said that is so uh, not true and not consistent with God's word was that there was, you know, there's the church, but then there's this separate thing called the messianic community of Jews who, who believe in, in Yeshua, but it's completely separate and distinct from the church. I find that nowhere in scripture. The church is made up of all Jews and all Gentiles who genuinely believe in the Messiah. And so we need to be so careful about that. It is one people of God. So much more that I could say about all of that. So many passages that we could look at and I've given you some of the references and you can look at that. I'm done with the stool now. A God-honoring response. Man, that almost killed me. (laughs) A God honoring response to, isn't this feel better? Amen. Rob, don't you like this better when I'm right here beside you? A God honoring response to what we've heard. All right. First of all, this we're going to respond with expectancy for the Lord's coming. This whole idea of God working with Israel again ought to get us so excited and so jazzed up inside about what God's going to do. We ought to be expectant. When we read the newspapers and we see stuff happening around the nation of Israel, we ought to be so excited about what we're seeing and so anticipating the coming of Jesus Christ. In fact, that whole idea of partial fulfillments, now but not yet, Looking at this and seeing it in Luke's, Luke's gospel. In fact, turn there, Luke 21. I read this and I... Well, man, could it be soon? Luke chapter 21, verse 25. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, look at this, straighten up. And raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And far from being afraid of these things, far from being all anxious about this, the world kind of being in upheaval, we ought to be looking up going, the end has got to be near. No more cowering in fear over these things. No more worrying about world events. Yes, folks, the day is coming when our financial house will collapse in this world. We are rushing headlong into it. The Americans are leading the way, lending more money than they have to lend. Mortgages and people raising their debt loads. Listen, this whole economic system is coming crashing down. The world is a powder keg. Not worried about it at all. People fighting over oil. We're going to fight over water soon. We know it. The environment is a mess. Despite Greenpeace's efforts and every government talking about it now, we're not turning it around. That's not news to anybody, right? Not to the followers of Christ. Straighten up, the text says. I love this. When these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads, your redemption's drawing near. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Man, are you fired up about that or what? Because I sure am. We need to have an expectancy for the Lord's coming. Two key signs, the things we really need to be watching for. Okay, just write these down quickly. Okay. Because people are so interested in kind of looking at the prophe- the prophecies like Ezekiel thirty seven and saying this is the state of Israel and looking for all of these signs. Listen, these are the only two signs you need to be watching for. Got it? The first one is this, Matthew twenty four fourteen. Am I proclaiming the message of Christ? We're going to talk about that in a minute. Am I proclaiming the message of Christ? Why is that a sign? Because on the day that every single person on this earth has heard the gospel, then the end is coming. And until that day, all of the other sign watching is futile. All the people that are reading the newspapers and reading the websites and trying to figure out all of that stuff and make this fit that, listen, if they would just go next door and tell their neighbor about Jesus... And support somebody to go to some part of the world where they don't have Jesus yet. Listen, then they're going to be doing far more for the coming of Christ than trying to figure out some other kind of mystical sign based on some apocalyptic literature that's pretty tough to understand. We need to get to work. That's the first sign. And then the second one is this from Luke 17. Am I just living, am I living the kingdom right now? We understand the kingdom of God is right now. We're not building the kingdom of God. It's built. It's now. It's in us. The kingdom of God is right in here, Klaus. It's right in your life. It's here, David. You are. The kingdom of God is in you if you are in Christ. Now it's being, listen, that's the now part. But we know it's not perfect. We're still trying to live it out. Someday it'll be fully realized. Now but not yet. And so uh, those are the two signs. Am I proclaiming it? Because someday everyone's going to hear it and it's going to be fulfilled. And am I living it? And if I'm living it, I don't ever have to worry about missing the coming of Christ. It's all we need in terms of signs. Here's the second thing. A God-honoring response, I'm going to respond with boldness. To share the message. and We've just kind of touched on that a little bit. But the mandate is clear in Acts 1-8. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. To the farthest reaches of this world. You have to be witnesses. By Acts 4, just a few chapters later... The disciples, they're, they're under pressure from the authorities and, and don't speak anymore in this man's name. And we, we can't help but speak the things that we have seen and hear. They get back with their own people after being whipped and flogged and interrogated and thrown in prison. Get back with their own people and they fall down on their knees and they pray to God, remove the persecution, make this a little easier on us. Is that what they prayed? Grant that your servants may speak your word more boldly and that's what we need. A huge infusion of boldness to be salt and light in this world. That's what we articulate in our fourth pillar as Harvest Bible Chapel, to proclaim the authority of God's word without a apology. Uh, sorry, that's the first pillar. I was just testing you. I, sh- I hope you caught it. I was sh- sharing the good news with boldness. And when we do so, it's no respecter of persons or ethnicity The mandate starts with Jerusalem and Judea, which would lead me to believe that God wants us witnessing to Jews and not resigning ourselves to the fact that they're entrenched against the Messiah, against Jesus Christ. We need to have the heart of Paul who said, my heart's desire is that Israel would be saved. The mandate must begin there. In some respects, the church must always be involved in trying to reach the Jewish people with the message of Jesus Christ in whatever way we possibly can. The mandate of the church is no respecter of persons. It goes on to speak of Samaria, the farthest reaches of the world. Every people group, all non-Jews. We need to have our hands on global ministries around the world. We understand this, that among the Jewish people, and there are agencies that work directly with Jewish people, I have friends who minister in that country, in Israel. I understand from our trip uh, that uh, 6 million people live in the nation of Israel, which, by the way, can fit in to southern Ontario. The farthest tips of Israel would reach from Oshawa to Windsor. That's it. And not even as wide as southern Ontario. It's a small country. 6 million people live there. Fewer than 10,000 messianic believers among six million residents of Israel. They need Jesus. They need to hear about the true Messiah. The Arab believers, because they can't be forgotten in this. In our zeal and our love for Israel, we cannot forget about the Arabs. Let me say that they are not the enemy. The Arabs are not the enemy. We as the church do not need to be pro, listen to me, please, we do not need to be pro-state of Israel. We need to be pro-peace, pro-justice, pro-mercy, pro-kingdom of God. That's what we're about. And so when there are injustices on the Israeli side, when the Arabs are blowing themselves up in the midst of Tel Aviv, we need to be against that. If the Jews commit atrocities against the Arabs and injustices, we need to speak against that. We need to be pro-gospel of Jesus Christ and proclaim that. There are Arab believers in the land. We met some in Nazareth Village, an Arab city, where there are Arab Israeli citizens. Some of whom are not Muslim, but are believers, evangelical Christian, Baptists and Brethren. Live and operate in that town, a micro minority. Some of you probably didn't even know they exist. They're a forgotten people in the midst of a large conflict that involves Arabs, who we often think of only as Muslims, and Israelis, who we often think of only as Jews. And in the midst of this are these little micro minorities of Messianic believers and Arab believers who are caught between these giants. They need to know they're part of something, part of a a church around the world that's zealous for the things of God and his kingdom. Here's a third God-honoring response. We need to respond with righteous living as our testimony. A couple of passages there that I could take us to. Let me take you to Zechariah, though. Zechariah is a great book worth spending time in and studying. Zechariah chapter 7. The word of the Lord came to Zechariah. Sadly, the people rejected this word. But it really lays out how we're supposed to be living our lives. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. This is living the life. This is living it out. It's righteous living as our testimony. No sense proclaiming a message if we're not also going to live out that life for all the world to see. We need to be reflecting the reality of the kingdom right now in this present age. We know that Israel fell down. We know that Israel was sent into exile because they failed to honor the Sabbath. They failed to find true spiritual rest. The principle is for us. Are we taking time weekly to honor the Lord by taking Sabbath rest, to to pulling ourselves apart and spending time with him? I think this is something that we fail in so badly. In idolatry, how many idols have we set up in our lives, things that we go after and and, and love more than anything else, more than we love God? What are the things that we just can't do without? It's idolatry. Rejecting of Messiah, not listening to Jesus, not becoming a follower of Christ. These are the touch points of righteous living. We need to be the people of God. We need to reflect the image of God in every way. Righteous living is our testimony in light of these prophetic passages that we read. Here's a fourth response, with love for those who have not yet heard. Again, not enough to proclaim the message, not enough to live a righteous life, but they need to see that we love them. Uh, Verse 28 of Romans 11, Paul calls them beloved. They are beloved by God. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of the forefathers. We need to be demonstrating love to both Jew and Gentile. Uh, we need to ensure that this is happening everywhere in the world where God has given us partnerships. We need to ensure that it's happening right here in the city of Barrie, that we're demonstrating the genuine love of Christ, that the benediction that we do at the end of every service, which is the responsibility of every person, we say, say the words with me, you are loved. Listen, I, I need the person beside me to know that they are loved. That's my responsibility. The leadership needs to model that. We know that we're loved by God, it's a reminder of that, but there needs to be tangible, person on person, I love you and I'm pouring myself out for you, that you would know the love of God through me. How can we demonstrate love to the Jew, to Israelis in particular, that that would continue to till the soil for their redemption? I recently, on our behalf as a church, sent a card to the Amshalom Synagogue here in Barrie. It was recently vandalized. It was a relatively minor incident, but I sent a letter of support saying we wouldn't stand for those kinds of injustices. We'd stand with them. We'd stand at the door if necessary to protect their building. It wasn't always that way for Canadians. You know how many Jews Canada brought into the country during the Second World War while Hitler was ravaging Europe? Do you know how many we brought in in Canada? We brought none in. While they were being led away in cattle cars to concentration camps, we brought none in. Our Christian nation brought none in. We need to demonstrate more fully. Do you wonder why Jews hate the name Christian? Do you wonder why they reject our Savior Jesus Christ, because so many of the injustices done, so many of the persecutions have been tagged not on the Arabs, but on those of us who call ourselves Christians. We can't really do enough to demonstrate our love. We need to stand against justice and hatred. We need to do it not just for the Jew, but for the Arab Here's a final thing. With gratitude for God's plan for his people. This is a godly response. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 15. Paul, of course, is wrapping up his letter. We've already discussed the fact that it's a very intentionally written letter. Argument upon argument and Paul's premises and propositions all being carefully argued. He wraps it up, really, all of his arguments in chapter 15. Uh, the balance of chapter 15 and into chapter 16 are just kind of housekeeping stuff and greetings to people. And... But look at the way he wraps this up in verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that is, the Jews... Christ became a servant to the Jews to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And in order, look at the purpose, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, here's God's plan. And then he goes on to quote from the Psalms, from Deuteronomy, from Isaiah. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. There's great gratitude there for the plan that God has been enacting, praising him, that God saw fit to include the Gentiles, to include the Jews, to bring about all of his purposes. God has a plan for his people, his people Israel, his people the church. It is a plan that culminates with these words. God and Father, we pray right now. We pray that you would give us a full and complete understanding and the desire in our hearts to apply these truths that we've heard today. Truths that involve proclaiming the message and living righteous lives. Loving those around us who have not yet heard the message. I pray, God, that you would be honored by what we have... uh, have proclaimed in this place. I pray, God, thanking you for the now, for what we have of the kingdom of God. And God, we pray in anticipation and with great expectancy for the not yet. God, bring about your plans and purposes. Use us in whatever way you see fit. This morning, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray, God, for an earthly peace, the cessation of hostilities. God, we pray against suicide bombings, about tensions between Arab, Jew, and Christian. God, we would pray these things for our own town, for Toronto, for Montreal, for New York City. God, we pray for an earthly peace. God, we pray for a spiritual peace. Peace that would be a reconciliation with you. God, that each individual in each city... And in that special city of Jerusalem would make a personal decision to find the forgiveness of sins and enter into a relationship with you, God. A city filled with religion. A city filled with people who are lost. Father, I pray for that future hope for the peace that comes at the end of the age. Father, I pray for the final act of mercy where the Jews will recognize their Messiah. I pray for that end times turning, the revival of the Jewish people to see that Jesus Christ truly is their Messiah. Father, we pray in all these things, in all these ways for the peace of Jerusalem. Hear this prayer. I pray to you now in the name of Jesus Christ. Let's stand, sing, and worship Him.